Book Two, Chapter Eighteen of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Eighteen. After dinner, Lady Charlotte fixed herself at first on Catherine, whose quiet dignity during the somewhat trying ordeal of the dinner had impressed her. But a few minutes' talk produced in her the conviction that without a good deal of pains, and why should a Londoner, accustomed to the cream of things, take pains with a country clergyman's wife? She was not likely to get much out of her. Her appearance promised more, Lady Charlotte thought, than her conversation justified, and she looked about for easier game. "'Are you Mr. Ellesmere's sister?' said a loud voice over Rose's head, and Rose, who had been turning over an illustrated book, with a mind wholly detached from it, looked up to see Lady Charlotte's massive form standing over her. "'No, his sister-in-law,' said Rose, flushing in spite of herself, for Lady Charlotte was distinctly formidable. "'Ah,' said her questioner, depositing herself beside her, "'I never saw two sisters more unlike. You've got a very argumentative brother-in-law.' Rose said nothing, partly from awkwardness, partly from rising antagonism. "'Did you agree with him?' asked Lady Charlotte, putting up her glass and remorselessly studying every detail of the pink dress its ornaments, and the slippered feet peeping out beneath it. "'Entirely,' said Rose, fearlessly, looking her full in the face. "'And what can you know about it, I wonder? However, you are on the right side. It is the fashion nowadays to have enthusiasms. I suppose you muddle about among the poor like other people.' "'I know nothing about the poor,' said Rose. "'Oh, then I suppose you feel yourself effective enough in some other line,' said the other coolly. "'What is it? Lawn-tennis, or private theatricals, or <laughs> prettiness?' And again the eyeglass went up. "'Whichever you like,' said Rose calmly, the scarlet on her cheek deepening, while she resolutely reopened her book. The manner of the other had quite a face in her all that sense of obligation, as from the young to the old, which she had been very carefully brought up in. Never had she beheld such an extraordinary woman. "'Don't read,' said Lady Charlotte complacently. "'Look at me.' It's your duty to talk to me, you know, and I won't make myself any more disagreeable than I can help. I generally make myself disagreeable, and yet, after all, there are a great many people who like me." Rose turned a countenance rippling with suppressed laughter on her companion. Lady Charlotte had a large, fair face, with a great deal of nose and chin, and an erection of lace and feathers on her head that seemed in excellent keeping with the masterful emphasis of those features. Her eyes stared frankly and unblushingly at the world, only softened at intervals by the glasses which were so used as to make them a most effective adjunct of her conversation. Socially she was absolutely devoid of weakness or of shame. She found society extremely interesting, and she always struck straight for the desirable things in it, making short work of all those delicate tentative processes of acquaintanceship by which men and women ordinarily sort themselves. Rose's brilliant, vivacious beauty had caught her eye at dinner. She adored beauty, as she adored anything effective, and she always took a queer pleasure in bullying her way into a girl's liking. It is a great thing to be persuaded that at bottom you have a good heart. Lady Charlotte was so persuaded, and allowed herself many things in consequence. "'What shall we talk about?' said Rose demurely. "'What a magnificent old house this is!' "'Stuff and nonsense!' I don't want to talk about the house. I'm sick to death of it. And if your people live in the parish, you are too. 
I return to my question. Come, tell me, what is your particular line in life? I'm sure you have one by your face. You'd better tell me. It will do you no harm.' Lady Charlotte settled herself comfortably on the sofa, and Rose, seeing that there was no chance of escaping her tormentor, felt her spirits rise to an encounter. "'Really, Lady Charlotte?' And she looked down and then up, with a feigned bashfulness. "'I—I I play a little.' "'Huh!' said her questioner again, rather disconcerted by the obvious missishness of the answer. "'You do, do you? More's the pity. No woman who respects herself ought to play the piano nowadays. A professional told me the other day that until nineteen-twentieths of the profession were strung up, there would be no chance for the rest. And as for amateurs, there is simply no room for them, whatever.' I can't conceive anything more passé than amateur pianoforte playing. I don't play the piano, said Rose meekly. What, the fashionable instrument, the banjo? laughed Lady Charlotte. That would be really striking. Rose was silent again, the corners of her mouth twitching. Mrs. Darcy, said her neighbour, raising her voice, this young lady tells me she plays something. What is it? Mrs. Darcy looked in a rather helpless way at Catherine. She was dreadfully afraid of Lady Charlotte. Catherine, with a curious reluctance, gave the required information. And then Lady Charlotte insisted that the violin should be sent for, as it had not been brought. "'Who accompanies you?' she inquired of Rose. "'Mr. Langham plays very well,' said Rose, indifferently. Lady Charlotte raised her eyebrows. "'That dark, Byronic-looking creature who came with you! I should not have imagined him capable of anything sociable. Letitia, Shall I send my maid to the rectory, or can you spare a man?" Mrs. Darcy hurriedly gave orders, and Rose, inwardly furious, was obliged to submit. Then Lady Charlotte, having gained her point and secured a certain amount of diversion for the evening, lay back on the sofa, used her fan, and yawned till the gentleman appeared. When they came in, the precious violin, which Rose never trusted to any other hand but her own without trepidation, had just arrived and its owner, more erect than usual, because more nervous, was trying to prop up a dilapidated music-stand which Mrs. Darcy had unearthed for her. As Langan came in, she looked up and beckoned to him. "'Do you see?' she said to him impatiently. "'They have made me play. Will you accompany me? I'm very sorry, but there is no one else.' If there was one thing Langham loathed on his own account, it was any sort of performance in public. But the half-plaintive look which accompanied her last words showed that she knew it, and he did his best to be amiable. "'I'm altogether at your service,' he said, sitting down with resignation. "'It's all that tiresome woman, Lady Charlotte Winstay,' she whispered to him behind the music-stand. "'I never saw such a person in my life.' "'McCauley's Lady Holland without the brains,' suggested Langham, with languid vindictiveness as he gave her the note. Meanwhile Mr. Winstay and the squire sauntered in together. "'A village Norman Neruda?' whispered the guest to the host. The squire shrugged his shoulders. "'Hush!' said Lady Charlotte, looking severely at her husband. Mr. Winstay's smile instantly disappeared. He leant against the doorway and stared sulkily at the ceiling. Then the musicians began on some Hungarian melodies put together by a younger rival of Brahms. They had not played twenty bars before the attention of everyone in the room was more or less seized unless we except Mr. Bickerton, whose children, good soul, were all down with some infantile ailment or other, and who was employed in furtively watching the clock all the time to see when it would be decent to order round the pony carriage 
which would take him back to his pale, overweighted spouse. First came wild snatches of march music, primitive, savage, non-European, then a waltz of the lightest, maddest rhythm, broken here and there by strange barbaric clashes, then a song, plaintive and clinging, rich in the subtlest shades and melancholies of modern feeling. "'Ah, but excellent!' said Lady Charlotte once, under her breath, at a pause. "'A mot entra, what beauty!' For Rosie's figure was standing thrown out against the dusky blue of the tapestry walls, and from that delicate relief every curve, every grace, each tint, each tint, hair and cheek and gleaming arm gained an enchanting, picture-like distinctness. There was jessamine at her waist and among the gold of her hair. The crystals on her neck and on the little shoe thrown forward beyond her dress caught the lamplight. "'How can that man play with her and not fall in love with her?' thought Lady Charlotte to herself, with a sigh perhaps for her own youth. He looks cool enough, however, the typical Dom with his nose in the air. Then the slow, passionate sweetness of the music swept her away with it, she being in her own way a connoisseur, and she ceased to speculate. When the sounds ceased there was a silence for a moment. Mrs. Darcy, who had a piano in her sitting-room, whereon she strummed every morning with her tiny rheumatic fingers, and who had, as we know, strange little veins of sentiment running all about her, stared at Rose with open mouth. So did Catherine. Perhaps it was then, for the first time, that, touched by this publicity, this contagion of other people's feeling, Catherine realised fully against what a depth of stream she had been building her useless barriers. "'More! More!' cried Lady Charlotte. The whole room seconded the demand, save the squire and Mr. Bickerton. They withdrew together into a distant oriel. Robert, who was delighted with his little sister-in-law's success, went smiling to talk of it to Mrs. Darcy, while Catherine, with a gentle coldness, answered Mr. Longstaff's questions on the same theme. "'Shall we?' said Rose, panting a little, but radiant, looking down on her companion. "'Command me,' he said, his grave lips slightly smiling, his eyes taking in the same vision that had charmed Lady Charlotte's. What a child of grace and genius! "'But do you like it?' she persisted. "'Like it? Like accompanying your playing?' "'Oh, no,' impatiently. "'Showing off. I mean, I'm quite ready to stop.' "'Go on, go on,' he said, laying his finger on the A. "'You've driven all my mauvais on the way. I've not heard you play so splendidly yet.' She flushed all over. "'Then we will go on,' she said briefly. So they plunged again into an andante and scherzo of Beethoven. How the girl threw herself into it, bringing out the wailing love-song of the Antonti, the dainty tripping mirth of the scherzo, in a way which set every nerve in Langham vibrating. Yet the art of it was wholly unconscious. The music was the mere natural voice of her inmost self. A comparison full of excitement was going on in that self between her first impressions of the man beside her and her consciousness of him, as he seemed to-night human, sympathetic, kind. A blissful sense of a mission filled the young, silly soul. Like David, she was pitting herself and her gift against those dark powers which may invade and paralyse a life. After the shouts of applause at the end had yielded to a burst of talk, in the midst of which Lady Charlotte, with exquisite infelicity, might have been heard laying down the law to Catherine as to how her sister's remarkable musical powers might be best perfected, Langham turned to his companion. 
Do you know that for years I have enjoyed nothing so much as the music of the last two days? His black eyes shone upon her, transfused with something infinitely soft and friendly. She smiled. How little I imagined that first evening that you cared for music. What about anything else worth caring for? he asked her, laughing, but with always that little melancholy note in the laugh. Oh, if you like, she said, with a shrug of her white shoulders. I believe you talked to Catherine the whole of the first evening, when you weren't reading Hamlet in the corner, about the arrangements for women's education at Oxford. Could I have found a more respectable subject? he inquired of her. The adjective is excellent, she said, with a little face, as she put her violin into its case. If I remember right, Catherine and I felt it personal. None of us were ever educated, except in arithmetic, sewing, English history, the catechism, and Paradise Lost. I taught myself French at seventeen because one Moliere wrote plays in it, and German because of Wagner. But they are my French and my German. I wouldn't advise anybody else to steal them. Langham was silent, watching the movements of the girl's agile fingers. "'I wonder,' he said at last, slowly, "'when I shall play that Beethoven again.' "'Tomorrow morning, if you have a conscience,' she said dryly. "'We murdered one or two passages in fine style.' He looked at her, startled. "'But I go by the morning train.' There was an instant silence. Then the violin case shut with a snap. "'I thought it was to be Saturday.' she said abruptly. "'No,' he answered with a sigh. "'It was always Friday. There is a meeting in London I must get to tomorrow afternoon.' "'Then we shan't finish these Hungarian duets,' she said slowly, turning away from him to collect some music on the piano. Suddenly a sense of the difference between the week behind him, with all its ups and downs, its quarrels, its ennuis, its moments of delightful intimacy, of artistic freedom and pleasure, and those threadbare, monotonous weeks into which he was to slip back on the morrow, awoke in him a mad, inconsequent sting of disgust, of self-pity. "'No, we shall finish nothing,' he said in a voice which only she could hear, his hands lying on the keys. "'There are some whose destiny it is never to finish, never to have enough, to leave the feast on the table, and all the edges of life ragged.' Her lips trembled. They were far away in the vast room from the group Lady Charlotte was lecturing. Her nerves were all unsteady with music and feeling, and the face looking down on him had grown pale. "'We make our own destiny,' she said impatiently. "'We choose. It is all our own doing. Perhaps destiny begins things—friendship, for instance—but afterwards it is absurd to talk of anything but ourselves. We keep our friends, our chances, our our joys, she went on hurriedly, trying desperately to generalise, or we throw them away willfully, because we choose. Their eyes were riveted on each other. Not willfully, he said under his breath, but no matter. May I take you at your word, Miss Laban? Wretched shirker that I am, whom even Robert's charity despairs of. Have I made a friend? Can I keep her? Extraordinary spell of the dark, effeminate face of its rare smile. The girl forgot all pride, all discretion. "'Try,' she whispered, and as his hand, stretching along the keyboard, instinctively felt for hers, for one instant, and another, and another, she gave it to him. "'Albert, come here!'
exclaimed Lady Charlotte, beckoning to her husband. And Albert, though with a bad grace, obeyed. "'Just go and ask that girl to come and talk to me, will you? Why on earth didn't you make friends with her at dinner?' The husband made some irritable answer, and the wife laughed. "'Just like you,' she said, with a good humour which seemed to him solely caused by the fact of his non-success with the beauty at table. "'You always expect to kill at the first stroke. I mean to take her in tow. Go and bring her here.' Mr. Winstead sauntered off with as much dignity as his stature was capable of. He found Rose tying up her music at one end of the piano, while Langham was preparing to shut up the keyboard. There was something appeasing in the girl's handsomeness. Mr. Winstead laid down his airs, paid her various compliments, and led her off to Lady Charlotte. Langham stood by the piano, lost in a kind of miserable dream. Mrs. Darcy fluttered up to him. "'Oh, Mr. Langham, you play so beautifully! Do play a solo!' He subsided onto the music-bench obediently. On any ordinary occasion, tortures could not have induced him to perform in a room full of strangers. He had far too lively and fastidious a sense of the futility of the amateur. But he played. What, he knew not. Nobody listened but Mrs. Darcy, who sat lost in an armchair a little way off, her tiny foot beating time. Rose stopped talking, started, tried to listen. But Lady Charlotte had had enough music, and so had Mr. Longstaff, who was endeavouring to joke himself into the good graces of the Duke of Sedba's sister. The din of conversation rose at the challenge of the piano, and Langham was soon overcrowded. Musically it was perhaps as well, for the player's inward tumult was so great that what his hands did he hardly knew or cared. He felt himself the greatest criminal unhung. Suddenly, through all that wilful mist of epicurean feeling which had been enwrapping him, there appeared a sharp illumining beam from a girl's eyes aglow with joy, with hope, with tenderness. In the name of heaven, what had this growing degeneracy of every moral muscle led him to now? What, smile and talk and smile and, and be a villain all the time? What, encroach on a young life like some creeping parasitic growth, taking all, able to give nothing in return, not even one genuine spark of genuine passion. Go philandering on till a child of nineteen shows you her warm, impulsive heart, play on her imagination, on her pity, safe all the while in the reflection, but by the next day you will be far away, and her task and yours will be alike to forget. He shrinks from himself, as one shrinks from a man capable of injuring anything weak and helpless. To despise the world's social code, and then to fall conspicuously below its simplest articles, to aim at being pure intelligence, pure open-eyed rationality, and not even to succeed in being a gentleman, as the poor commonplace world understands it. Oh, to fall at her feet, and ask her pardon before parting for ever! But no, no more posing, no more dramatising. How can he get away most quietly, make least sign? The thought of that walk home in the darkness filled him with a passion of irritable impatience. "'Look at that Romney, Mr. Ellesmere, just look at it!' cried Dr. Merrick excitedly. "'Did you ever see anything finer? There was one of those London dealer fellows down here last summer, offered the squire four thousand pounds down on the nail for it.' In this way Merrick had been taking Robert round the drawing-room, doing the honours of every stick and stone in it, his eyeglass in his eye, his thin old face shining with pride over the Wendover possessions. 
and so the two gradually neared the oriel, where the squire and Mr. Bickerton were standing. Robert was in twenty minds as to any further conversation with the squire. After the ladies had gone, while every nerve in him was still tingling with anger, he had done his best to keep up indifferent talk on local matters with Mr. Bickerton. Inwardly, he was asking himself whether he should ever sit at the squire's table and eat his bread again. It seemed to him that they had had a brush which would be difficult to forget. And as he sat there before the squire's wine, hot with righteous heat, all his grievances against the man and the landlord crowded upon him. A fig for intellectual eminence if it makes a man oppress his inferiors and bully his equals. But as the minutes passed on, the rector had cooled down. The sweet, placable, scrupulous nature began to blame itself. What, play your cards so badly, give up the game so rashly, the very first round? Nonsense. Patience, and try again. There must be some cause in the background. No need to be white-livered, but every need, in the case of such a man as the squire, to take no hasty, needless offence. So he had cooled and cooled. And now here were Merrick and he, close to the squire and his companion. The two men, as the rector approached, were discussing some cases of common enclosure that had just taken place in the neighbourhood. Robert listened a moment, then struck in. Presently, when the chat dropped, he began to express to the squire his pleasure in the use of the library. His manner was excellent, courtesy itself, but without any trace of effusion. "'I believe,' he said at last, smiling, "'my father used to be allowed the same privileges. If so, it quite accounts for the way in which he clung to Muirwell.' "'I had never the honour of Mr. Edward Ellesmere's acquaintance,' said the squire frigidly. "'During the time of his occupation of the rectory I was not in England.' "'I know. Do you still go much to, to Germany? Do you keep up your relations with Berlin?' "'I have not seen Berlin in fifteen years,' said the squire briefly, his eyes in their wrinkled sockets fixed sharply on the man who ventured to question him about himself uninvited. There was an awkward pause. Then the squire turned again to Mr. Bickerton. "'Bickerton, have you noticed how many trees that storm of last February have brought down at the northeast corner of the park?' Robert was inexpressibly galled by the movement, by the words themselves. The squire had not yet addressed a single remark of any kind about Muirwall to him. There was a deliberate intention to exclude, implied in this appeal to the man who was not the man of the place on such a local point, which struck Robert very forcibly. He walked away to where his wife was sitting. "'What time is it?' whispered Catherine, looking up at him. "'Time to go,' he returned, smiling, but she caught the discomposure in his tone and looked at once, and her wifely heart rose against the squire. She got up, drawing herself together with a gesture that became her. "'Then let us go at once,' she said. "'Where is Rose?' A minute later there was a general leave-taking. Oddly enough, it found the squire in the midst of a conversation with Langham. As though to show more clearly that it was the rector personally who was in his black books, Mr. Wendover had already devoted some cold attention to Catherine, both at and after dinner, and he had no sooner routed Robert than he moved, in his slouching way, across from Mr. Bickerton to Langham. And now, another man altogether, he was talking and laughing, describing apparently a reception at the French Academy, the epigrams flying, the harsh face all lit up, the thin, bony fingers gesticulating freely. 
The husband and wife exchanged glances as they stood waiting, while Lady Charlotte, in her loudest voice, was commanding Rose to come and see her in London any Thursday after the 1st of November. Robert was very sore. Catherine passionately felt it, and, forgetting everything but him, longed to be out with him in the park, comforting him. "'What an absurd fuss you be making about that girl!' Winchester exclaimed to his wife as the Ellesmere party left the room, the squire conducting Catherine with a chill politeness. And "'Now I suppose you will be having her up in town, making some young fellow who ought to know better fall in love with her. I am told the father was a grammar school headmaster. Why can't you leave people where they belong?' "'I have already pointed out to you,' Lady Charlotte observed calmly, "'that the world has moved on since you were launched into it. "'I can't keep up class distinctions to please you. "'Otherwise, no doubt being the devoted wife I am, I might try. "'However, my dear, we both have our fancies. "'You collect savour at China, with or without a pedigree.' "'And she coughed dryly. "'I collect promising young women. "'On the whole, I think my hobby is more beneficial to you "'than yours is profitable to me.' Mr. Winstay was furious. Only a week before he had been childishly, shamefully, taken in by a due curiosity dealer from Vienna to his wife's huge amusement. If looks could have crushed her, Lady Charlotte would have been crushed. But she was far too substantial as she lay back in her chair, one large foot crossed over the other, and as her husband very well knew, the better man of the two. He walked away, murmuring under his moustache words that would have hardly borne publicity, while Lady Charlotte, through her glasses, made a minute study of a little French portrait hanging some two yards from her. Meanwhile the Ellesmere party was stepping out into the warm damp of the night. The storm had died away, but a soft scotch mist of rain filled the air. Everything was dark, save for a few ghostly glimmerings through the trees of the avenue, and there was a strong sweet smell of wet earth and grass. Rose had drawn the hood of her waterproof over her head, and her face gleamed an indistinct whiteness from its shelter. Oh, this leaping pulse, this bright glow of expectation! How had she made this stupid blunder about his going? Oh, it was Catherine's mistake, of course, at the beginning. But what matter? Here they were in the dark, side by side, friends now, friends always. Catherine should not spoil their last walk together. She felt a passionate trust that he would not allow it. "'Wifey!' exclaimed Robert, drawing her a little apart. "'Do you know it has just occurred to me that, as I was going through the park this afternoon by the lower footpath, I crossed Henslow coming away from the house? Of course this is what has happened. He's told his story first. No doubt just before I met him he'd be giving the squire a full and particular account, a la Henslow, of my proceedings since I came. Henslow lays it on thick, paints with a will.' The squire receives me afterwards as the meddlesome pragmatical priest he understands me to be, puts his foot down to begin with, and hink in I lacrimae. It's as clear as daylight. I thought that man had an odd twist of the lip as he passed me. "'Then a disagreeable evening will be the worst of it,' said Catherine proudly. "'I imagine, Robert, you could defend yourself against that bad man.' "'He's got the start. He has no scruples. And it remains to be seen whether the squire has a heart to appeal to.' replied the young rector, with sore reflectiveness. "'Oh, Catherine, have you ever thought, wifey, what a business it will be for us if I can't make friends with that man? Here we are at his gates, all our people in his power, the comfort, at any rate, of our social life depending on him. 
And what a strange, unimaginable, inexplicable being! Ellesmere sighed aloud. Like all quick, imaginative natures, he was easily depressed, and the squire's sombre figure had for the moment darkened his whole horizon. Catherine laid her cheek against his arm in the darkness, consoling, remonstrating, every other thought lost in her sympathy with Robert's worries. Langham and Rose slipped out of her head. Ellesmere's step had quickened, as it always did when he was excited, and she kept up without thinking. When Langham found the others had shot ahead in the darkness, and he and his neighbour were tete-a-tete, despair seized him. But for once he showed a sort of dreary presence of mind. Suddenly, while the girl beside him was floating in a golden dream of feeling, he plunged with a stiff deliberation born of his inner conflict into a discussion of the German system of musical training. Rose, startled, made some vague and flippant reply. Langham pursued the matter. He had some information about it, it appeared, garnered up in his mind, which might perhaps some day prove useful to her. A St. Anselm's undergraduate, one Dashwood, an old pupil of his, had been lately in Berlin for six months, studying at the conservatorium. Not long ago, being anxious to become a schoolmaster, he had written to Langham for a testimonial. His letter had contained a full account of his musical life. Langham proceeded to recapitulate it. His careful and precise report of hours, fees, masters and methods lasted until they reached the park gate. He had the smallest powers of social acting, and his role was dismally overdone. The girl beside him could not know that he was really defending her from himself. His cold, altered manner merely seemed to her a sudden and marked withdrawal of his petition for her friendship. No doubt she had received that petition too effusively, and he wished there should be no mistake. What a young, smarting soul went through in that half-mile of listening is better guessed than analysed. There are certain moments of shame which only women know, and which seem to sting and burn out of youth all its natural sweet self-love. A woman may outlive them, but never forget them. If she pass through one at nineteen, her cheek will grow hot over it at seventy. Her companion's measured tone, the flow of deliberate speech which came from him, the nervous aloofness of his attitude, every detail in that walk seemed to Rose's excited sense an insult. As the park gate swung behind them, she felt a sick longing for Catherine's shelter. Then all the pride in her rushed to the rescue, and held that swooning dismay of that heart of her in check. And forthwith she capped Langham's minute account of the scale method of a famous Berlin pianist by some witty stories of the latest London prodigy, a child violinist, incredibly gifted, dirty and greedy, whom she would made friends with in town. The girl's voice rang out sharp and hard under the trees. Where in fortune's name were the lights of the rectory? Would this nightmare never come to an end? At the rectory gate was Catherine, waiting for them, her whole soul one repentant alarm. "'Mr. Langham, Robert has gone to the study. Will you go and smoke with him?' "'By all means. Good night, then, Mrs. Ellesmere.' Catherine gave him her hand. Rose was trying hard to fit the lock of the gate into the hasp, and had no hand free. Besides, he did not approach her. "'Good night.' she said to him over her shoulder. "'Oh, and Mr. Langham,' Catherine called after him as he strode away, "'will you settle with Robert about the carriage?' He turned, made a sound of assent, and went on. "'When?' asked Rose lightly. "'For the nine o'clock train.' 
"'There should be a law against interfering with people's breakfast hour,' said Rose. "'Though, to be sure, a guest may as well get himself gone early and be done with it. "'How you and Robert raced, Cathy. "'We did our best to catch you up, but the pace was too good.' "'Was there a wild taunt, a spice of malice in the girl's reckless voice? "'Catherine could not see her in the darkness, "'but the sister felt a sudden trouble invade her. "'Rose, darling, you're not tired?' "'Oh, dear, no. Good night. Sleep well. What a goose Mrs. Darcy is!' And, barely submitting to be kissed, Rose ran up the steps and upstairs. Langham and Robert smoked till midnight. Langham, for the first time, gave Ellesmere an outline of his plans for the future, and Robert, filled with dismay at this final breach with Oxford and human society, and the only form of practical life possible to such a man, threw himself into protests more and more vigorous and affectionate. Langham listened to them at first with sombre silence, then with an impatience which gradually reduced Robert to a sore puffing at his pipe. There was a long space during which they sat together, the ashes of the little fire Robert had made dropping on the hearth, and not a word on either side. At last, Asmir could not bear it, and when midnight struck he sprang up with an impatient shake of his long body, and Langham took the hint gave him a cold good-night, and went. As the door shut upon him, Robert dropped back into his chair, and sat on, his face in his hands, staring dolefully at the fire. It seemed to him the world was going crookedly. A day on which a man of singularly open and responsive temper makes a new enemy, and comes nearer than ever before to losing an old friend, shows very blackly to him in the calendar, and by way of aggravation, Robert Ellesmere says to himself at once that somehow or other there must be fault of his own in the matter. Rose, pshaw! Catherine little knows what stuff that cold, intangible soul is made of. Meanwhile, Langham was standing heavily, looking out into the night. The different elements in the mountain of discomfort that weighed upon him were so many that the weary mind made no attempt to analyse them. He had a sense of disgrace of having stabbed something gentle that had leant upon him, mingled with a strong, intermittent feeling of unutterable relief. Perhaps his keenest regret was that, after all, it had not been love. He had offered himself up to a girl's just contempt, but he had no recompense in the shape of a great addition to knowledge, to experience. Save for a few doubtful moments at the beginning, when he had all but surprised himself in something more poignant, what he had been conscious of had been nothing more than a suave and delicate charm of sentiment, a subtle surrender to one exquisite aesthetic impression after another. And these things, in other relations, the world had yielded him before. "'Am I sane?' he muttered to himself. "'Have I ever been sane? Probably not. The disproportion between my motives and other men's is too great to be normal. Well, at least I am sane enough to shut myself up. Long after that beautiful child has forgotten she ever saw me, I shall still be doing penance in the desert." He threw himself down beside the open window with a groan. An hour later he lifted a face blanched and lined, and stretched out his hand with avidity towards a book on the table. It was an obscure and difficult Greek text, and he spent the greater part of the night over it, rekindling in himself with feverish haste the embers of his one lasting passion. Meanwhile, in a room overhead, another last scene in this most futile of dramas was passing. Rose, when she came in, had locked the door, torn off her dress and her ornaments, and flung herself on the edge of the bed, 
her hands on her knees, her shoulders drooping, a fierce red spot on either cheek. There, for an indefinite time, she went through a torture of self-scorn. The incidents of the week passed before her, one by one. Her sallies, her defiances, her impulsive friendliness, the élan, the happiness of the last two days, the self-abandonment of this evening. Oh, intolerable! Intolerable! and all to end with the intimation that she had been behaving like a forward child, had gone too far and must be admonished, made to feel accordingly. The poisoned arrow pierced deeper and deeper into the girl's shrinking pride. The very foundations of self-respect seemed overthrown. Suddenly her eye caught a dim and ghostly reflection of her own figure as she sat with locked hands on the edge of the bed, in a long glass near, the only one of the kind which the rectory household possessed. Rose sprang up, snatched at the candle which was flickering in the air of the open window, and stood erect before the glass, holding the candle above her head. What the light showed her was a slim form in a white dressing-gown that fell loosely about it, a rounded arm upstretched, her head still crowned with its jessamine wreath, from which the bright hair fell heavily over shoulders and bosom, eyes under frowning brows flashing a proud challenge of what they saw, two lips indifferent red, just open to let the quick breath come through, all thrown into the wildest chiaroscuro by the wavering candle-flame. Her challenge was answered. The fault was not there. Her arm dropped. She put down the light. "'I am handsome,' she said to herself, her mouth quivering childishly. "'I am. I may say it to myself.' Then, standing by the window, she stared into the night. Her room on the opposite side of the house from Langham's looked over the cornfields in the distance. The stubbles gleamed faintly. The dark woods, the clouds teased by the rising wind, sent a moaning voice to greet her. "'I hate him! I hate him!' she cried to the darkness, clenching her cold little hand. Then presently she slipped on to her knees and buried her head in the bedclothes. She was crying angry, stifled tears which had the hot impatience of youth in them. It all seemed to her so untoward. This was not the man she had dreamed of, the unknown of her inmost heart. He had been young, ardent, impetuous, like herself. Hand in hand, eye flashing into eye, pulse answering to pulse, they would have flung aside the veil hanging over life and plundered the golden mysteries behind it. She rebels. She tries to see the cold, alien nature which has laid this paralysing spell upon her as it is, to reason herself back to peace, to indifference. The poor child flies from her own half-understood trouble, will none of it, murmurs again wildly, "'I hate him! I hate him! Cold-blooded! Ungrateful! Unkind!' In vain. A pair of melancholy eyes haunt, enthrall her inmost soul, the charm of the denied, the inaccessible, is on her, womanlike. That old sense of capture, of helplessness, as of some lassoed, struggling creature, descended upon her. She lay, sobbing there, trying to recall what she had been a week before, the whirl of her London visits, the ambitions with which it had filled her, the bewildering many-coloured light it had thrown upon life, the intoxicating sense of artistic power. In vain. The stream will not flow, and the hills will not rise, and the colours have all passed away from her eyes. She felt herself bereft, despoiled, 
and yet, through it all, as she lay weeping, there came flooding a strange contradictory sense of growth, of enrichment. In such moments of pain does a woman first begin to live? Ah! Oh, why should it hurt so, this long-awaited birth of the soul? End of Book Two, Chapter Eighteen